0: welcome to this installment of witness to yesterday the podcast of the champlain society My name is Nicole O'Byrne and I'm a legal historian at the Faculty of Law, University of New Brunswick, which is located on the unceded and unsurrendered land of the Willastiquic. Today I'll be interviewing Jim Naylor, Rhonda Hinther, and Jim Machorek about their co-edited book, For a Better World, the Winnipeg General Strike and the Workers' Revolt. Jim Naylor is a professor in the History Department at Brandon University. He's the author of The Fate of Labour Socialism, the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation and the Dream of a Working Class Future. Rhonda Hinther is also a history professor at Brandon University, where she teaches Western Canadian and public history. An active public historian, she works in film and television, gaming, and museum exhibitions. Jim Machorik is the Chester Fritz Distinguished Professor of History at the University of North Dakota. He is the author of Formidable Heritage Manitoba's North and the Cost of Development. 1870 to 1930. Welcome to Witness to Yesterday. It's great to have all three of you joining us to talk about this wonderful book.
1: Well, thank you very much.
0: Rhonda, I'll start by asking you about the origins of this book project. Why did you want to put together an edited collection about the Winnipeg general strike at this point in time?
2: Well, the coming of the centenary of the 1919 Winnipeg General Strike really created a kind of perfect point of reflection on the strike 100 years later. So as 1919 approached, you had labor and community projects really proliferating in Winnipeg. And as writers, actors, curators, and others set to work, the city's working class, past and present, really took on a a newfound prominence. So this book is self-consciously a part of those events. Jim and Jim and I were among those who participated in helping organize what turned out to be just a huge conference held in May of 2019. It was called Building a Better World 1919 to 2019. And it brought together more than 300 academics and public historians, trade unionists, other activists, as well as a broader public to re-examine the workers' revolts of 1919 and its relevance to the present. So given that so many people were coming to the conference to give presentations about the strike, it made sense to gather them up and produce an edited collection, especially since it had been a long time since the book on the strike had been produced. So roughly half of the papers that ended up in the book uh, came directly out of the conference And the rest we solicited to help round out the treatment of not only what happened in Winnipeg in the spring of 1919, but also that broader global workers' revolt that occurred at the same time.
0: There are two (laughs) Jims, so I'll have to switch back between uh, Jim Naylor and Jim Machorek. So my next question is for Jim Naylor. In the introduction, co-written by all three of you, you mentioned that the Winnipeg General Strike provides, quote-unquote, a useful history. What does that mean?
3: Uh, Thanks. Yeah, it's a term useful history that comes from the 1960s and 1970s, and the rise of the modern social history movement, which looks at ordinary people's uh, connection to the past, um, to figure out how we got where we are, and perhaps give us some guidance about how to deal with current problems. And the Winnipeg General Strike is a prime example. Uh, We organized a conference that Rhonda spoke about with this in mind, but it wasn't really our thinking alone. Uh, most significantly, the labor movement in Manitoba was really excited to commemorate uh, the strike. The Manitoba Federation of Labor, the Winnipeg Labor Council, and a slew of unions uh, got involved as supporters and attendees at the conference. They were all frustrated by decades of growing inequality, of growing pre- the growing precarious nature of their jobs, of anti-labor governments weakening workers' rights. And so they saw a kind of inspiration in uh, the events of 100 years ago Um, and um, also saw the strike as a model of workers coming together overcoming divisions between uh, skilled and unskilled workers between workers of Canadian or British birth and recent immigrants from more diverse places all to kind of exercise their collective power and in the context of 1919 resetting the game if you will In 2019, it was not unusual to hear workers talking about a new general strike because their unions, if they were able to form a union in the face of increasingly well-financed and sophisticated employer strategies, were being picked off one by one. And so 1919 was not just an inspiration. It had a lot to say about how workers could unite effectively effectively and to try to rebuild the power that unions had been losing for the last uh, few decades. So the message of the general strike resonates in all kinds of ways and is a good platform to begin to really kind of reassess things and think about the future.
0: Jim Machorek, I'm going to ask you a question that's been asked many, many times about the Winnipeg general strikes over the past century. Was it a strike or was it a revolution?
1: In a strange way. The the answer is yes. Uh, It was definitely uh, it was definitely a strike, and it was for all of those traditional trade union goals, right? You know, you can look at the the Western Labor News and and the Strike Bulletin and everything that the the strikers put out, coming out of the Strike Committee and and out of Bill Ivans, and clearly the the goals were some pretty traditional. Goals and the the general strike was in one sense simply a, a new weapon that had proved to be really effective, particularly in Winnipeg in 1918, and it was going to be utilized. But by the same token, um, situations develop on the ground. No one really knew exactly what this general strike was going to look like. Uh, not even, arguably, the most radical of the members of the Central Strike Committee, Bob Russell, really could foresee what what would happen and one of the things that that some of the essays in this book but also the scholarship of the last 30 years has demonstrated is that the situation in winnipeg and elsewhere you know throughout the larger labor revolt was one of incredible fluidity um you know and not to not to focus upon the uh the, the return men but when we think about just how their attitudes changed over time through through this strike um there, there were real moments where this could have become a revolution. Many years ago, Jerry Friesen, you know, pointed out uh, that this could have become a revolution if, if there had been a Lenin, uh, and you know, he was quite an expert on Bob Russell. Of course, Bob Russell was no Lenin, uh, but the situation itself was revolutionary. In that, one of the things that amazes me most when I consider the strike is the level of solidarity. And that was in and of itself revolutionary because when you think about the divisions in the Winnipeg working class, they were so profound. I mean, they were <laughs> there were so many different categories of division. Uh, we, you know, th- there were anti-alien riots in the streets, mobs had had gone through the, the working class districts of Winnipeg as recently as January of 1919. And to be able to overcome those types of divisions, uh, to have Incredible unity through this this six week experience is in and of itself revolutionary. But also, it could have gone in a different direction. I, I don't want to give any credit to the Citizens Committee of a of, thousand, of or rather thirty four. But you know, the the reality was that the situation was fluid, and there was a spirit abroad. And when we consider the larger workers' revolt, not just here but around the world, there were revolutionary situations. So. It was, yes, a strike for traditional trade union goals, but it was also a situation in flux.
0: Jim Naylor, in her chapter, Adele Perry examines the links between Winnipeg's labor movement and the land dispossession of the Shoal Lake 40 First Nation. How does the study of Indigenous-non-Indigenous relations contribute to a better understanding of the general strike?
3: The strike did demonstrate this incredible uh, unity among a really diverse Population in Winnipeg. Uh, But it saying that, um, as many historians have, have really ignores Indigenous people. Uh, And uh, Adele Perry drew attention to that and forced us to think about it. Uh, Winnipeg gets its water from Shoal Lake on the Ontario border. Shoal Lake is part of the Lake of the Woods system. And the construction of an aqueduct to deliver the water, which has long been celebrated as an engineering marvel and a stunning example of forward thinking. Um, building that uh, aqueduct had decimating consequences for the members of the Anishinaabe community at Shoal Lake. Not only was much of the reserve land taken from them, the engineering works rendered their community isolated and inaccessible, and most ironically it ended up depriving the community of a source of clean water and the Winnipeg labor movement was uh in a number of ways implicated in this uh, but most significantly Winnipeg unions successfully fought to have indigenous workers excluded from the construction in favor of uh, their own members being hired this predated the strike but only by a number of a matter of months uh, in the various records of the general strike uh, not only are indigenous voices absent but researchers have really not found any mention of them in the sources that survived and this erasure ignores the fact that there were clearly indigenous people in winnipeg including no doubt among those returned soldiers who played such an important role in the conflict and we know that there were substantial metis communities in winnipeg that supported themselves largely by wage labor Uh, and so Adele's contribution is really important. In the final chapter of the book, uh, the three of us uh, tried to explore the reasons for this, including the fact that um, in the settler colonial imagination, particularly in cities, um, this imagination did not incorporate Indigenous people into this kind of modernist notion of who belonged to the working class. So the strike was remarkable for the extent that it, The labor movement increasingly included the so-called aliens or foreigners, uh, women in various ways and so on. But Indigenous people were uh, in another category and speaks in important ways to the way that uh, Indigenous people were excluded and their presence erased.
0: Rhonda, I'd like to ask you about the veterans of the Great War. They played a very important role during the strike, but they weren't all on the same side. Could you tell us about the pro-strike patriots and the striker soldiers?
2: So David's chapter is such a key contribution to the book for the way it expands and nuances our understandings of the place, attitudes, and actions of Great War veterans in the strike. As he notes in his introduction, quote, scholars are unanimous on the formidable and volatile role Great War veterans played during the Winnipeg General Strike, yet Within the historiography, the striker soldiers remain shadowy figures, end quote. So to rectify this, David zeroes in on 12 men in his chapter, all pro-strike organizers, digging into how actually diverse they were in perspective and action, and how these men laid pressure on the strike committee toward a, a more aggressive resistance. They had just returned from fighting in this brutal conflict and came home to crummy pensions and under or unemployment. And for them, David characterizes the strike as more than just a strike, if you can call the Winnipeg General Strike just a strike, uh, but, quote, an ex-soldier's mutiny, end quote. What he found among these 12 were two positions. So six were what he calls pro-strike patriots and the other six pro-strike insurgents. The first group aligned their strike engagement very much within the realm of traditional British values and sought reforms to improve conditions for workers like themselves that didn't challenge liberal capitalism. But the other group, the pro-strike insurgents, were much more radical, more ethnically inclusive in their outlook on the working class, calling out a morally bankrupt system, seeking to, and I'll quote again here, fundamentally transform economic and state relations, end quote. But these positions weren't set in stone. There was fluidity, and as David asserts, for all these men, I'll quote yet again, the strike challenged untested assumptions, dislodged deeply held beliefs, and created opportunities to think and act otherwise, end quote. And I'll confess that this is actually one of my favorite chapters in the book, not necessarily because it's looking at veterans, but that's fine, but because it gives us in many ways a more personal look at who some of the individual strikers were and the complexity of their position. We don't really know much about supporters in this way. And this chapter helps to uncover some of these experiences through the biographical information David provides on these men, their connections to veterans' organizations, and the roles they played in the strike. And it's a great piece that makes an important and much-needed contribution to strike scholarship.
0: Jim Machorek, the Jewish community played a large role in the strike. One of the more interesting players is Abraham Albert Heaps. What insights can we learn from his involvement with the strike?
1: Well, A.A. Heaps is an absolutely fascinating character, and his role in in the strike and after the strike is is really, really interesting. The thing is, in one sense, A.A. Heaps was quite often not even considered to be completely a part of the Jewish community, uh, in the sense that he was born in England, always spoke with a Yorkshire accent. and as far as I know, and I've spoken to Henry Trachtenberg, who wrote the great chapter for for our book on uh, the Winnipeg Jewish community, and I've checked as many other sources I, as I can find, and I can never find any instance of Heaps ever addressing any audience in Yiddish. Uh, and I know for a fact that his his wife, uh, who was also from England, didn't speak any Yiddish. They were not tied into. the the larger North End Jewish community in some of the more traditional ways, right? A lot of the North End Jewish community were were Orthodox. Uh, Heaps tended to be non-observant. They certainly aren't part of the Yiddishist component. But having said all that, uh, he, both as an alderman and then later as a member of parliament, uh, he always had large, large amounts of support from the Jewish community. And of course, was a, later in his career, was one of the most active advocates of uh, of allowing more Jewish refugees to enter into Canada. He was an early critic of fascism in Europe, uh, wanting the Canadian government to do more. But in terms of, of the moment of the strike, Keeps was a little bit more connected to the British or to the traditional British laborites. Uh, you know, his closest friend and, and colleague was John Queen, the two men were arrested together uh because queen was actually staying over at his house uh the the night of the the june 17th uh, sweep but certainly he had the support of the jewish community and was seen as being someone who was important to the jewish community and would remain so for many many years um but to to go back to the question of the jewish community itself one of the things that henry trachtenberg demonstrates so fully in his chapter in the book is how it was indeed the politics of class it was considerations of class above all else that that seemed to motivate the jewish community and provided such an incredible level of support and not to downplay the role of, of heaps because you know there he is serving as an alderman serving you know fighting against the anti-strike forces on city council and then going over and, and helping to run the commissariat for the uh for supply of, of food for those who are suffering during the during the strike. Um, but he is he plays a, a liminal role, I think, and fits much more closely to some other there are some other members of the of the Winnipeg Jewish community who were also British born, Jack Bloomberg, uh folks like that, Marcus Hyman, the well-known lawyer, who of course is going to play an important role in 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 the defensive strikers. Uh, and so he he is a, a liminal figure, I think. Uh, and the, the Jewish community, both the Eastern European, those who come directly from Eastern Europe, and then also the smaller British contingent, all played a fascinating and important role in both the strike and later in the politics of Winnipeg, particularly the working class politics of Winnipeg.
0: Jim Naylor. Several of the articles in this collection compare and contrast the Winnipeg General Strike by analyzing labor unrest in other communities such as Edmonton, Crow's Nest Pass, Montreal, Kansas City, Seattle, and Boston at the same time period. In your opinion, how does this context enrich our appreciation of the strike in Winnipeg?
3: The Winnipeg General Strike is such a huge and iconic event in Canadian history, right? 35,000 people going on strike for six weeks. Um, perhaps one person on average from each family in Winnipeg was on strike, um, is often considered and used to be considered as a kind of one-off, in a sense that it uh, uh Winnipeg was the center of it, and historians tend to look at social relations in Winnipeg in order to understand it. But as labor history flourished in the 70s and 80s, it became clear that there had been uh, a couple dozen or more other general strikes or near general strikes across Canada. And of course, all the events worldwide that have been referred to. And the period around 1919 provided a kind of perfect storm. On one hand, it was the culmination of rapid capitalist development with its concentration of corporate power undermining of old craft skills, large-scale immigration, and a general feeling of increased insecurity for working people. And World War I exacerbated all those things in a number of ways, adding problems of steep inflation and an increasingly authoritarian government. So the issues were everywhere, and they led to explosions everywhere. And so Winnipeg really can't be understood outside of that broader context, However, no two places, of course, are exactly the same. They have different industrial bases. Uh, they have different local histories. There's different relationship of forces and so on. And so these other chapters are not really kind of exercises in comparison with Winnipeg, but they're helpful in highlighting broader issues. For instance, uh, the chapter on Edmonton provides a good example of another prairie city, uh, which had a general strike, but it was markedly less successful, the labor movement, uh, proved less unified, uh, which poses a question of why and why that wasn't as much of a problem in Winnipeg. And in the conclusion, in the last chapter, we tried to draw some of those issues out. Tom Langford's uh, study of the coal miner strike in the Closed Nest Past region is a fascinating study of a militant group of workers whose strike was closely connected to the fate of Winnipeg strike that was going on at the same time. And. Uh, the uh the two chapters on Montreal uh by Benoit Marzin and Jeffrey and focus on the mobilization of the city's workers in the streets, something we felt that has generally been left out of the study of, of Winnipeg. We include uh Jeff Steele's uh Kansas City chapter because it's an exact fascinating example of the ways in which both gender and race uh shape the struggle there. Uh, both of which could be expanded in places like Winnipeg. And of course, we had to include Seattle, the other really great North American general strike of 1919. And Cal Winslow tells a magnificently dramatic tale of that strike.
0: In, Maturik, in his chapter about the role of the Royal Northwest Mounted Police, labour historian Greg Keeley argues that the reaction to the strike strengthened the surveillance state and led to a reorganisation of policing in Canada. What does this study tell us about the quote-unquote murky waters of secret agents, informants, and other policing methods?
1: Well, of course, you know, Greg, Greg Kelly has been working in this field for quite some time. And the essay that he contributes to the book is uh, is just a fascinating read uh, because it gives all sorts of depth to the role played, for example, by military intelligence uh, in in the the years leading up to the strike um but also he's he is very very clear that by the conclusion of the strike the royal northwest mounted police by their use of secret agents uh one of which they had embedded uh with jake penner uh and feeding all sorts of information on later on the defense committee uh quite illegally that got quite you know directly to uh to those prosecuting the strike leaders. The the core argument that the Winnipeg General Strike is going to strengthen the Royal Northwest Mounted Police, which is very quickly going to emerge as the national police, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, who are going to become the experts at hunting reds and dealing with dangerous, you know, foreign-born radicals. It's all—it's part of a larger set of developments that, once again, Greg Keeley. Uh, with, uh, with with Andrew Parnaby and Reg Whitaker have pioneered looking at the mechanisms of the repressive state. It's not just the changes, and once again related to the Winnipeg General Strike, of the Immigration Act, uh, but also the, as soon as the strike is over, the uh, the addition of, of Section 98 to the Criminal Code of Canada, and that broad, broad definition of sedition, and the utilization of both immigration law and citizenship law to deport people who you don't want, but also when you want to go after those who don't agree with the state, uh, you have the RCMP now who are going to be able to make use of this new legislation. And scholars such as Dennis Molinaro, with with his work on Section 98, have made clear how the repressive state mechanisms were able to take up where the old War Measures Act had left off and provide the state with all kinds of power. But just as importantly, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police are going to become the agents par excellence of enforcing these new laws and bringing more people in to quiet them down. And you know, of course, we know eventually the the Communist Party itself is going to be outlawed, and we're going to see people tried under Section 98 of the Criminal Code. Uh, and the RCMP, of course, is always providing the uh, the information through its network of spies and agents. Uh, they're not always great, but they're always there.
0: Jim Naylor. How did the strike end? I'm particularly interested in exploring author Meyer Simiatiky's examination of corporatism.
3: I think most people associate the end of the strike with Bloody Saturday, right? That brutal assault of peaceful mark, uh, peaceful march of strikers and returned soldiers, in front of City Hall by the mounted police and the specials. Who were essentially vigilantes who replaced the police force, which had been mostly fired for their sympathy with the strikers. The march was largely to protest some nighttime raids and arrests of individuals associated with the strike. And the strike was called off within days to be followed by the famous strike trials, aimed mostly at discrediting the radical ideas that seemed to be behind the strikes. Uh, so the challenge for business, and particularly for the federal government, was how to prevent something like the general strike from happening again. Repression worked at the moment, but how could workers be inoculated against radicalism as it had emerged in the general strike movement and in the one big union? And their strategy was to give uh, credence to conservative unions, like some of the old craft unions. Uh... A conservative labor leader was named uh, the federal minister of labor. Uh, the federal government invited the conservative union president of the American Federation of Labor, Samuel Gompers, to address parliament. And uh, large employers, like those in the Crow's Nest Pass that the chapter in the book talks about, uh, those employers in the coal fields of the Crow's Nest Pass who have been rapidly anti-union, agreed to contracts with the more conservative unions as a way to shut out the much more popular radicals who, by this point, were increasingly associated with the one big union. Uh, Corporatism involves integrating employers and workers into a system where workers can feel represented in exchange for exercising self-control, avoiding things like disruptive strikes. Um, An example would be the September 1919 conference by representatives of of employers chosen by the Canadian uh, Manufacturers Association and workers selected by uh, the more conservative leadership of the Trades and Labour Congress, uh, which this large uh, conference met in the August Senate chambers in Ottawa, uh, where Labour representatives got a hearing, although I have to say no action Uh, followed on any of their concerns. Um, In most cases, employers' infatuation with even conservative labor did not outlast the radical scare. By the early years of the 1920s, corporatism in the workplace looked more like company unions. Employees were allowed to be represented as long as they did not join real unions. Uh, So the workers' representatives did not have any real independence from the company or any real power. So, the defeat of the general strike movement was by the 1920s accompanied by new strategies uh, where employers in the States uh, sought to stifle independent, oppositional labor voices.
0: Rhonda, there are two excellent chapters in the book about commemorating the Winnipeg general strike. In his chapter, historian David Frank makes the observation, and I'll quote here, that the historical commemoration is to a large degree not about the past but about speaking to the future. How does the history of the Winnipeg General Strike speak to our future?
2: For many of us involved in planning the various centenary events, doing so was more than simply celebrating the past. Over the three years we spent planning the conference, the organizing committee discussed and debated how we could really critically commemorate the past, but also put it to work tying it to and using it to inform modern day struggles and continue the fight for what the strikers and other members of the working class revolt sought a better world. So this book is the product of those debates and the themes of the conference we built. So as we note in the book, and I like to quote, so I'm going to quote again, quote "The challenges of inadequate pay and precarious work, the struggle to overcome divisions within the working class, and the possibilities that arose when labor came together to imagine a better world, end quote. And taken together, the centenary and all of the various projects that came with it, especially the public history project, helped create or rejuvenate an audience that is interested in labor political history, There are many possibilities of building upon this and expanding it to encompass a broader working-class public history that moves beyond looking at just the strike. The strike has been and will continue to be important to remember and commemorate, but it's also a critical moment in time to offer expanded public history coverage to other aspects of working-class history. There are lessons to be learned, perhaps most notably, the power labor has when it comes together in solidarity as my co-editors have already mentioned in this uh, podcast but it also speaks to lessons on the impact that this solidarity can have on social change
0: thank you all so much for putting together this wonderful edited collection thank you so much for talking uh, uh, with us today on witness to yesterday
2: thanks so much for having us
0: My guests today have been Jim Naylor, Rhonda Hinther, and Jim Machorik. They are the co-editors of For a Better World, the Winnipeg General Strike and the Workers Revolt, published by the University of Manitoba Press in 2022. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you can learn more about the Champlain Society. Please follow us on social media. We welcome reviews and ratings as well. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who work hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. We would like to thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Nicola Byrne, This interview was recorded on November 17th, 2023. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt and is supported by the University of Toronto Press Journal team.